This is a Morley Radio production. Welcome to Artcast, a new podcast presented by Matt G, artist and subject leader for fine art at Morley College, London. The decision to do this podcast was inspired by photographs taken from the polio outbreak in America in the 1940s, where students were being remotely taught by radio. This podcast will be a series of informal discussions with artists about their work, lifestyle, and how they have adapted during the current crisis we live in. We aim to disseminate material for students by limiting screen time and providing a feed of information for when they are taking a break from the screen. I'm delighted to say my third guest is Findak on streetartbio.com. It says about his work, through his work, Findak explores themes related to female emancipation and empowerment while revealing their sensuality and sensitivity at the same time. The artist's artwork aims to tackle racial and sexual stereotypes that surround women while readjusting the male gaze and former colonialist attitudes surrounding the Eastern experience. Findak has collaborated with brands like Armani, G-Star, Red Bull, and has painted for the Royal Albert Hall and the 2012 Olympic Games in London. He has exhibited his work in galleries and museums, mainly in Europe, but also in USA, and painted murals in USA, Canada, Mexico, France, UK, Spain, Germany, Belgium, Cambodia, Australia, New Zealand, and Tahiti. Finn, welcome. How are you doing? Good, thank you. That description is actually okay. Some of those public um, websites and stuff, they they get the details completely wrong. And then they base them on yeah. old um, like uh, bios that are like about 10 or 12 years old, but that one's actually okay. Okay, I'm <laughs> glad to hear that. What have you been up to today? Um, I'm painting. Um, I'm doing a solo show later in the year in October here in London. And um, I started kind of November, December last year. And essentially I'm, I'm just working every single day until such time as I get the work finished. If I, if I finish everything like two or three months beforehand, great. I'll have time to um, maybe go and paint a wall somewhere. Um, yeah. But I suspect I'm going to be working all the way up until the um, the opening date. Yeah. So is, is that show in the gallery space then? Correct. It is yeah. uh, it's a place called gallery different in, um, I guess you call it Fitzrovia. It's just off Charlotte Street anyway, or just off um, Oxford Street. Okay, great. Um, so I've got like a few standard questions I ask. Um, and the first one is, <laughs> I've also got like obviously ones tailored to you. And I'll bet I've answered them numerous <laughs> times as well. <laughs> so um, have you got a favorite color at the moment? <laughs> very straightforward one, I guess. Oh, Lord. Straightforward, but very um, complex at the same time. Yeah, it's probably turquoise, to be honest. Mm. Turquoise or like a sort of a duck egg blue. Duck egg blue, that's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a lot of um, uh, kind of like neon pieces at the moment because for the show, I, I decided to um, not just do my standard traditional stuff. I wanted to really kind of like um, experiment and do not just one different style, but do loads of different styles. So the, the chances are that at the show, there will be um, various sections made up of like five or six canvases in that particular style yeah and i originally when i started doing the work for the show i was doing individual canvases from each of those styles but then just recently i um i started doing all the the pieces for the neon part of the show and 
the color associations with the neons are quite strange so that when you look at them individually they don't really make much sense but when you put them together they kind of give this um almost solarized look to the work yeah and turquoise and reds are a big part of that yeah oh, great and um are you listening to any music in particular at the moment or is does, does music sort of play a part in terms of getting into the zone when you would be practice um it does, but there's no, there's generally no real plan. I, I have, so today I'm just listening to Bob Dylan for some reason. I, I don't know why. Um, and I think during this sort of last two months period of, of work, I have focused on um, kind of older music. Um, I, I have a, a massive music collection anyway. I've always, I always have done, I inherited my, um, my first music for my mum and dad because they were super into music and music was always being played in the household and so the things like Bob Dylan and the Beatles and um, David Bowie and all those kind of people that came from them but I haven't I, I couldn't say that I've grown out of them I think I appreciate that stuff more now as I'm getting older <laughs> and I don't want to listen to uh, you know I can't say can I <laughs> better not discredit anybody yeah. uh, but like the, the stuff like the stuff like um Taylor Swift and these kind of guys, it 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 um it gets monotonous very quickly for me. Yeah. I think there's much there's much more depth and um meaning to the kind of older stuff, if you like. And it's not even the stuff from my own generation. I think my generation is the um the Depeche Modes and the Tears for Fears, the kind of real sort of like um mega pop eighties, if you like. Um but I I I'm tending to listen to much more um acoustic music now maybe mm. okay you know we're locked down it's it's raining a lot it's cold a lot you just kind of need some soothing music in the in the studio rather than something to get your energy up yeah and um i'm interested in names of of mural painters and street artists um i think i was listening to cause talking recently about i mean with his name it was literally just the way he liked the aesthetics of the letters and I was wondering if you could mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about how you came up with your name um, and if there was other names that you had beforehand. Well, my, my real name is is Finn, um, or that's a shortened, that's a shortened version of Finbar, which is my full name. The DAC part of my name is actually a D-A-C, and it's the D stands for Dragon Armory Creative. Mm. Um, it was um, a moniker that we used for um, a portfolio website for me and my friend. Um, he was Chinese, I was Irish, and we came up with this um, notion that the the dragon symbol is important in both Chinese and Irish or Celtic cultures. And so we used the dragon as the symbol of our website. And um, when he eventually went back to China, I continued with the portfolio um, on my own. And it became a portfolio just of like my um, my digital work, my illustration work. Um, all of which were, um, I mean, the digital work was my job at the time, but all the other stuff on there was just like hobby stuff. Um, and when I started painting, there didn't seem to be any reason to uh, separate that from the rest of my um, creative portfolio. And I quite liked the idea of using this dragon symbol as my um, my logo rather than signing my name. And so I just kept with it. Yeah. Um, the, the dragon logo was... Um, I think I retired it about three or four years ago, mainly because it had kind of uh, it had served its purpose, and I needed something new. The um, 
if I consider the fact that the reason for the dragon logo was a sort of a secret identity, and you know, I, my identity is not secret. It, it hasn't been for years and years and years. My face is all over the internet. Um, so it, did, it didn't really um, resonate that much anymore. Mm. Okay. And the signature that runs through your work in terms of how you paint eyes, and I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how you developed this feature and, and maybe, maybe touch upon how you are developed by dark graphic novels. Well, I've always said to people that um, my influences down through the years have never influenced the work that I do, really. Um, the the only one really that I think had any impact in terms of what I was painting was Sin City. I used the the black and white and the, the red as a kind of a, an identity for the work. And I gave the um, the girls, the, the gang of girls, a name as well. They were the girls of Dactown. But all the other in all the other artists who I've been influenced by, that there's nothing of their stuff in my work. Mm. Um, I did a a little test last year where I, I took some of my images and I cut them in half and I, I repainted the other half in the style of a different artist. And what I realized when I did that was the people like Aubrey Beardsley and Alphonse Mucha, my my work has subtle undertones of their stuff mm. in it, um, in the way that they depicted women um, with strength, but also with style and with grace. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never really considered that before until such time as I did that little experiment. And... I was quite surprised by um, that revelation. Yeah, I don't know why, but I just I don't think about um, other artists and the style of their work when I'm doing my own thing. Yeah, my my process is um, hard to define. My thought process, I should say, um, because I, I don't really particularly think about what I'm doing. It's yeah. uh, I go into autopilot and and yeah, something intuitive. comes out at the end of it. Yeah, and and also you don't forget the the style of my work has grown and, and changed organically as time has gone on. Like the the stuff that I became really well known for was the monochromatic work with just the splash of color across the face. And they, you know, they they had a kind of a a badass look about them, I guess you'd say. But when I, once I started painting the kind of more traditional Asian um, stuff, the, the costumery and the clothing, um, they still maintained that badass look about them, but it, it was a much softer look because of the nature of traditional Asian clothing yep. and um, the way they made up. Um, so it, it's hard to, it's hard for me to kind of um, separate the traditional stuff from the the more badass stuff. But mm. I'm assuming that other people who see the work, um, you know, if they see old pieces of mine, they're not sure that it's me or not even though it still has the mask on the face. Yeah. I guess the one thing that is a bit more direct is how you go about choosing who to paint and you you, you address them as, as muses. And I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how you how you come to the decision over who to paint or if it or if again it's it's quite spontaneous or No, so it it's derived essentially from the the first muse that I painted and the the way that happened so um essentially i I was on i was going on a paint trip to um paris to paint in a in an area where another artist had already painted an asian themed piece and so i thought to myself well it might be quite nice to do a portrait of an asian um girl 
because I was literally painting on the wall next to where that guy had painted. Um, I don't know why I did that because I had never done that before. But at the time I was, I think I was just painting like friends and family portraits or people who I knew from Facebook who I had seen a photo of theirs and I requested if I could use it, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then for this specific piece, I went on to like Flickr, which was the the sort of precursor to Instagram, like in the, the olden days. <laughs> um, and I just did, I did a search, um, possibly like with the search term Asian female or something like that. And one of the photos that popped up just um, kind of spoke to me instantly. And I contacted what I thought was the photographer because I didn't, I didn't read into the, the actual photo or where it come from. And essentially I contacted the photographer and what I realized from the reply was that the girl in the photo was the photographer as well. She was a photography student. Um, and I painted her on, on this wall in Paris and the, the, I was really pleased with the end result and lots of people in Paris or in that suburb of Paris, they reacted to it favorably as well. And so I thought, well, I've enjoyed the process of doing this. She, she was essentially my first muse. And so I, I contacted her again and then just said, look, would you be up for being a muse for the work going forward? Um, there was no stipulation as to how we were going to work. She didn't live in the same country as me. And so there was no, um, no chance of doing photo shoots or anything like that. And I actually, I didn't want to do photo shoots anyway. I wanted the, the photos that I got to come straight from her creative side yeah. and for her to not be under any pressure to um, furnish me with these photos as and when I wanted them, just as and when she could do them, she would send them to me. Sometimes they were selfies. Sometimes they were um, taken by friends of hers. But essentially, I was just taking those photos and adapting them in my own way because the the way that I work, and I still work this way to this day, is that I take lots of different photos and lots of different elements from photos and piece them all together on the computer to make it look like it's one figure. Mm. The majority of my work is never one figure. It's nearly always at least five different images oh, okay. pieced together. And then also a lot of um, adapting as I'm painting. Sometimes the, the image on the computer doesn't look um, anatomically correct or something's not quite right about it. But I don't worry about that because it is essentially just a, a digital sketch, um, albeit quite a weird one. And I know that... Um, as I'm painting it, I can put all the things right that are wrong in the image on the computer. Yeah. And I, I still work that way to this day. And it was it was working with that girl, Nicole, um, that kind of set me down this this path. Um, six months later, I, I found another girl. Um, I was doing a more rock and roll style piece and, and Nicole's um, face wasn't suitable for that. And so I went back onto Flickr and I did another search and I found another girl, Meg. And strangely they had gone to school together in like Singapore or somewhere like it was just a super weird coincidence um but on that occasion I contacted the photographer and the photographer had said to me I'm okay with you using the the photo but um you need to speak to the the model as well and so I spoke to the model and as soon as I messaged her she just came back and said oh it's okay I know who you are you paint my friend Nicole so it was just this weird like um universe coming together or whatever and so that seemed to me to be the universe telling me, okay, that this is the route that you should be going down. And so I just, of course, now there's 
30 something muses maybe mm. um megan megan nicole are still part of the project um in fact meg now lives here in london she's the the model who i'm the closest to if you like um kind of like a surrogate father to her um and the way that i choose muses now is not necessarily scientific the and a lot of the time i don't actually even understand why i choose them mm. there's just there's obviously something about them that subconsciously speaks to me yeah and once i there's very few models who i've painted that i don't paint again i, I nearly always repeat um you know someone might send me 10 photographs but those 10 photographs are all in different poses or the, the faces or the head is at a different angle to the camera and so i can adapt it to to do whatever i want it with mm. um some of those faces i've actually used the same pose more than once but the artworks are like four or five years apart so nobody knows no one can tell and of course in the process of painting they, they do come out slightly different anyway so it doesn't really matter to me yeah but the muses are the muses are super important mm. the the reason why I call them muses and the reason why I named them on the post is because it, it's something about them that helps to define the artwork or dictate where I go with the artwork. Yeah. Okay. So I'm super excited to talk about your mural work, but before that, I think it'd be useful to talk about your practice within printmaking, especially as it's uh, it's quite a good way of artists making a living basically. And I think it's a very good way of talking to the students about how to commercialize their work as well. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the recent project with Mick Rock, um, and which involved limited edition prints and canvases, mm -hmm. and just talk a little bit about how the, the, the process of combining photography within your practice was, um, and, and maybe a little bit about just, uh, yeah, sort of working with other people on a print run as well, rather than just sort of working within oneself rolling rolling out some ink basically um that'd be great yeah well there's a few points to touch on there yeah. the the point about the financial side of things is is super important because the the prints were the thing that helped me survive for a long period of time and the reason for do the for doing the prints in the first place was a very um scientific evaluation if you like because at the time um, my canvases were valued at about let, let's say a thousand pounds 1200 pounds and the, the 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 logics of that are that you have to find one person to spend 1200 pounds mm. but if you do a, a print the prints are valued at around 100 pounds and you're always going to find 12 people to spend 100 pounds before you'll find the one person to spend 1200 so that means you only have to sell 10 prints in order to make the same amount of money does that make sense yeah of course i mean i mean your prints sell out extremely fast uh, from what I've yeah seen, but yeah. The, the other thing is as well is that you don't just do 10 prints you you do like 50 or 100 or something yeah. along those lines and so straight away financially you're much better off if you like by focusing on the the lower end of the market i hate putting it like that but it, it's that's the way it is you're focusing on um pockets which aren't that deep yeah but you know the, the how much money you have in your pocket doesn't equate to how passionate you are about art yeah of course yeah and for me making the art available to people who didn't have deep pockets was very very important mm -hmm. to me because i i didn't have deep pockets um 
and I, I was fortunate insofar as that right from the word go, from the very first screen print onwards, everything just sells out in minutes. And of course, over the years, that repeating itself means that each and every release has become more and more um, uh, difficult to get because more and more people want them. And yeah. because everyone keeps missing out, it means they want it even more. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like hype, um, hype basically. Yeah, yeah, it is. But it's, it's, not, um, it's not hype that we've um, – we haven't done anything to make that hype as big as it is mm. it's been an organic hype mm. it's just gone along with the releases the yeah some might say that you know the the releasing of constantly good images or constantly desirable work that that helps that but that's just that's just part of the process yeah. if, if you're not producing work that um you're into yourself then you can't really expect other people to be into it mm -hmm. i really love what i do and i couldn't say that i put my heart and soul into everything that i do but my work is everything to me. Yeah. So the separation of heart and soul from that is is irrelevant. Um, I don't think I've ever sort of like um, half-assed anything. Mm -hmm. Everything I do is done with the the maximum I I can muster at any particular point. And I do think that when you, you when you know when you put stuff out into the universe in the right way and with the right mindset and the the right heart, then the rewards come back at you. That's always the way I've seen it. I have lots of artist friends who I, I would say are way more talented than me, um, both technically and creatively, but they don't put the work in. Right. They just don't. And they bemoan other artists for the success that they get, and they think that they deserve more, but you don't. You get exactly what you deserve. When you, when you put everything into what you're doing, you, you'll get stuff back. If you were to equate that sort of lack of work ethic, perhaps it's not lack of work ethic, perhaps it's a lack of working smart as well or working effectively. Correct. So is, is there something in particular that you could pinpoint within that? Like but perhaps why one of these talented artists that you mentioned is not perhaps selling as much as they could? Well, so as a creative, we, we all have creative doubts and a lot of people allow those doubts and those fears to um, stop them from doing what they should be doing. Mm. I never had that. I mean, obviously, I, I started as an artist super late in my life. Like my the whole of my 20s and 30s was taken up doing other things. I hardly drew at all. And I had certainly never painted or spray painted until I... Um, I basically split up with my partner and my life changed completely. And I became a street artist after that. But because of the, the way that I had got into um, this period of my life, the, the doubts and the fears that I had of making mistakes or doing things wrong were eradicated because I had done all the things that I thought I should have done up until that point in my life when I was like in my late 30s. And my life was in, my life was in bits. So all the things that I thought I should be doing and all the things that I thought I was doing right, um, they hadn't helped me. Sure. And so from that point on, I just decided, okay, I'm just going to do what I intrinsically feels right to me. And I don't care if I don't, if I fit in or I don't care if my peers like my work or anything like that. I'm just going to do it because the art was, I was doing it for myself. Mm. And that's not the same as an art career. There, there was no career at that point. It was just me painting to, um, 
help myself to feel better, to prove to myself that I could do something, um, to prove to myself that I had much more to offer than I had offered the world up until that point. Um, but I do, I do think that the doubts and the fears play a huge part in most people's minds. Um, and then, of course, you know, everything you achieve is done in a singular fashion as an artist. I, I think most of the time it's not like you're part of a company or, you know, you're all in it together. You're it's an individual lifestyle and everything that one of your friends does and succeeds at can kind of eat away at you if you're not having the same success. And, you know, it's always, this is not just a, 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 from an artistic point of view, but it's always easier to blame other people. Mm-hmm. The, the situation that I found myself in when I was 40, yes, I could have blamed other people for it, but I didn't. I took responsibility for it myself and I, I changed my life and I changed my way of thinking because of that. Um, yeah. It's always far easier to, t- to blame other people because it means you don't have to take responsibility. And when you don't take responsibility, you don't get the rewards. That's how I've always felt about it. Yeah, I think a lot of the conversations I've had with artists um, since I went to art school is, is just about advising each other not to compare not to compare yourself to other people, basically. Yeah. And that's the advice we give the students. But it's funny because it's, it's just such a natural thing and you have to keep reminding each other. But I don't understand. I don't understand why it's a competition. It's not. Uh, yeah, I think maybe social media. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's social media. But, you know, the the the, the person like, um, oh, let's just say Rothko, you know, he's a super famous artist, mm. um, super successful in his own lifetime. But the work he does doesn't appeal to me personally. So why would I compare what I do to someone like him? And then, of course, that's just one artist. I don't mean to focus on Rothko, but that's just one artist in a whole sea of artists who do widely varying styles of work. What you need to do as an artist is you need to find your style and hone it as much as you can and make it desirable. Because, you know, if, if you're drawing a stick man, well, there are artists out there who draw stick men and have been hugely successful. Yeah. It's the, the, what, what you're painting is not... Um, is not indicative of the success or the the um, the fame that you can get if that's what you're after. Mm. There's so much more to it than that. Yeah, definitely. I think it's just that internal doubt that people have, I guess. And I think it is it goes yeah. it goes beyond the art world, doesn't it? it it's it's a you know a family might have what they have, and then they, they'll look at the grass being greener on the other side. I think I think that's just a typical human thing we have to remind ourselves but i'm interested you said you started out when you were uh, 40 then so yes. what were you what were you doing before that um in my in my 20s i mean i i should have been an artist i think it's just that like you were just saying there about your family lives sometimes those things have an impact that you don't really understand at the time so for me what happened was i i was i think you might say that i i had an, a natural talent because i used to draw as a child yeah um, but they were just pencil drawings. And unfortunately for me, I wasn't, I wasn't in a, a family situation or, or even a situation outside of my family where I was um, given encouragement. I didn't have mentors. I didn't have art education. And what happened for me that really impacted was that when I went to high school um, or secondary school or whatever we call it here, um, I followed my brother. My brother was two years older than me, but he wasn't an artistic person. He was a technical person. And so he had been recommended to go to this particular school. And two years later, when I entered into secondary school, um, 
we were from a working class background, lived in social housing, et cetera, et cetera. And so the natural thing was for me to go to the same school as him, regardless of what it meant, because um, I would get his hand-me-down uniforms and books and all the rest of it. And so the impact financial wise on the, the family was reduced. Mm. So I went to this technical school and they didn't do art. And so straight away, that meant that I, I didn't, I wasn't in a scenario where I was learning. Yeah. Yes, I knew how to draw pictures, but the way that I looked at my work when I was younger was that I could draw a pretty picture. That that means absolutely nothing. You know, you can't, especially when you're being told by teachers that, you know, you need to get a real job. Yeah. That that happens all the time. And when you're a child who hasn't had mentors and hadn't hasn't had training, you don't need much of a discouragement to have an effect on you. And so yeah. I went through high school. I actually did do like A-levels and O-levels mm -hmm. art, but I just did the exams. Um, and I got I got help or like course notes from other friends in other schools who were doing art. And, and I did get, um, like when I did my, um, my A-levels, I got the highest grade possible in the highest paper possible. And there was only, if I remember rightly, there was only three or four people in the whole of Ireland had done that that year. Wow. But the problem was, is that I, I didn't have a portfolio right? because I hadn't, I hadn't had those five years of developing, developing my work. And so when I went to try to get into college to do graphic design, it, it, I was just laughed out of the room because I had no, um, I had no evidence of the work that I could do. I just had evidence of what I was doing and that wasn't good enough. Yeah. And so the two things that I, I liked in school were art and technical drawing or two things I liked in my high school years. And I did uh, technical drawing in school. And so when I left school, I, I became a draftsman um, doing like engineering and, and stuff like that. And that's what I did all throughout my 20s. I was also DJing in my spare time in my 20s. And then in my 30s, I became a web designer and developer. Mm -hmm. And that that led all the way up to when I um, stood up with for my partner when I was 39. And it was actually being a web designer and developer that was the stepping stone into becoming an artist. Again, in a, in a very strange way, the, the like the universe seemed to be working in my favor. I, um, I started working in digital advertising in the London media agencies. And that was the first time that I'd ever worked in an environment where I was surrounded by creative people. Yeah. And the epiphany was the fact that, you know, all these guys that I was working with, they'd all done bachelors of arts or MAs in art or design, and they had all started working in creative um, jobs, but none of them was any more confident than I was. And actually, none of them was any more creative than I was. It's just that I had allowed the voices in my head to tell me I wasn't good enough. And so being surrounded by those people and, and understanding that they were exactly the same as me, in spite of their BAs and their MAs and all the rest of it, that that made me think to myself, okay, well, you know what, I'm going to start painting anyway, because I need I needed something at that point just to take my mind off what was going on. Yeah, and it it snowballed very quickly. I realized as soon as I started painting, I think it was it couldn't have been more than six months between starting to paint and then starting to do um, stencil and street art. But I, I realized very quickly that I should have been doing this all along. Yeah, no, that's that's really inspirational because I guess bigger picture, sort of nationwide, globally, there's a sort of attitude that the the power structures that be might 
suggest that once we turn 18, we sort of have to be set in our ways of what we're going to do for our life. But it's, yeah. it, I always find it really inspirational to hear about not necessarily just people that become an artist, but, you know, um, people that become an actor or something like that midway through life or late through life. Um, no, it's okay. You can say late on. <laughs> I understand. I understand that 40 is quite late. <laughs> no, it's um, for me, the, that, um, that phrase that your life begins at 40. I mean, I couldn't be more of a, an example for that. Yeah. Like literally the, the whole of my life before that, even when I was a DJ in my twenties, it, it never, that was my creative outlet then. But it never really felt right. It didn't. It, um, it kind of felt like I was a fraud because I was playing other people's music. It's almost like it wasn't creative enough. It was creative enough to sort of like um, satiate my desire to be creative, but it didn't feel like I could um, make a living from it, but also be proud of myself mm. from doing it. You know, because a lot of the time in life we kind of make decisions based on the the money alone mm -hmm. and that doesn't help no definitely I not i think if you have that knowing if you have that knowing voice inside your head the doesn't matter how much money you have it's it's not going to go away yeah definitely okay so talking about the murals now so i was wondering if you could talk to us about the windward walls in miami and just maybe explain a little bit about um, that set up to our listeners and how you persuaded them uh, to be the first artist to paint on one of their roofs um, and maybe, <laughs> maybe talk about some of the challenges you encountered there um, in terms of logistically because I can imagine that uh, working on a roof poses quite quite a few challenges in terms of potentially the weather or yeah it definitely did um, so for those that don't know Windward Walls is like the it's kind of the first legal project that involved street art murals there's a it was a winwood was a rundown district of miami an industrial area with lots of like single story industrial buildings and it was synonymous with graffiti back in the sort of 2000s 2010s and when um the the basel um festival started happening in miami um which is there's two there's one in Basel in Switzerland and then there's another one in Miami different times of the year and the one in Miami is like a glamorous affair um but at that time contemporary galleries had just started to sort of feature street artists certain street artists and I, I don't know how this quite happened but there was a there was an event called primary flight which took place in Wynwood um few of the big name graffiti artists who were being represented by some of the galleries at Basel, they they went to Wynwood and did like a sort of a, a legal project to paint walls in that area. And then the following year, one of the property owners, Tony Goldman, he got the idea that um, he would set up a kind of a, almost like a garden, hmm. like a walkthrough place where, with walls internally that you could, uh, that he would have artists come and paint and that you could visit uh, as a tourist. And that idea just took off like the the whole of Wynwood is covered in murals um and on a ever rotating and expanding um e each year it seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger yeah the i've been going to miami for eight years and even the first year i went i mean it was just it was ridiculous there was like hundreds of artists in that area all hanging out and painting walls and 
getting up to all sorts, you know. Um, but the Windward Wars has always been like the official um, part of that. And there's not a huge amount of artists that are invited to paint in Windward Wars. It's, it's a very small club. Um, I would have thought that in the 10 years, it couldn't be more than like maybe 120, 150 artists. So to be asked to paint there was um, quite an honor. But because of the way that I, I, I am and the way that I work, I, I like I don't get off on the whole ego of it. And so um, when they first approached me, I said to them, I, I'll do it as long as I can do something a little bit different. And I had shown them uh, a rooftop piece that I had done in Hong Kong and just said to them, look, if you have a rooftop, I'd, I'd much rather do that. In, in the end, they, they agreed to it, but they also gave me a small wall that I painted within the, within the garden. The wall didn't last more than a year because there was a storm that kind of ruined um, part of the installation. It wasn't just a mural. But the, um, of course, the argument from their point of view was always, but you know, nobody's going to see the rooftop. And I'm like, yeah, I know that's why I want to do it. Because, you know, you can, I always, when I do the rooftops, I always do these kind of like making of videos to go out on social media. And the fact of the matter is, is that most people, um, they find their art through social media. They don't they don't see it in the flesh. Um, and it also meant that once I'd painted the roof, nobody else was going to paint it either. All the walls within Windward Walls are rotated every year. There's, there's possibly 20 walls, and I think five or six of them are repainted each year. So if you've painted a wall, Three or four years later, it's going to be gone because it's been replaced by somebody else's. Um, but the whole idea was to just do something that wasn't expected. Do you ever find you have to touch them up or say if they've been there for a few years or the colors fade or anything like that? I never, I never do. Okay. That's, that's not the, that's not the purpose. Right. Like the, in actual fact, one of the reasons I got to the style that I have now with these kind of glitches and, and mm. paint marks is because of the way that some of the murals had reacted to the weathering. Yeah. You know, where the paint starts to chip off or whatever. I quite like that. Each mural has a life of its own. Once you paint it, for, for me, you have to let go of that. I'm not into this going around and touching things up and making things look perfect again. They're not meant to be perfect. Yeah. They're meant to be they're out there in the urban environment and environment. And if they're not affected by the urban environment, it's you're kind of cheating. Yeah. You know what I mean? I love how they deteriorate. I love how the certain pieces get tagged up and it gets worse and worse over the months and months. And then there's, there's actually a piece in Miami right now where I had painted it, I think three years ago and it was painted on a building that was like a, a sort of a clubhouse or a, a bar type place. And of course, during COVID, the bar closed down for good. And lots of the artists in the area have just gone to that building and bombed it or added stuff to the wall. But the portrait that I painted is still there. But now it's in the middle of all this, like, I wouldn't say mess, because all the artists are good in their own right, but they've all added their own thing to the wall. And so it's it's just made the wall much more vibrant and much more alive than what it was when I had painted it on my own. And I love the fact that they've done that. And I love the fact that they've been respectful to the original mural as well. They've kind of painted around it yeah, and added to it rather than just like put a cross through her face or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I like the life that the murals have. I, I don't mm. care so much if it lasts. I, I think I would be, 
I'd be annoyed if the something I had spent days painting got tagged straight away, you know, and ruined. Yeah. But if if the if over the course of months or years the the, the work starts to take on a different identity, I love that. Yeah, I'm really into that too. I mean, in terms of urban environments, this idea of a palimpsest or things that are building up and stickers, stickers collecting in areas, it's the closest we'll get, I guess, to a humanistic ver- version of like erosion and things like that that are in natural processes. Yeah, there's a couple of artists that do it with the... Um, it, there, there are certain places like Paris and, and Berlin where the, the advertising posters, mm-hmm. you know, in, in this country, we don't really have it. But in the, in those cities, they have this thing where someone will put an advertising poster up and then someone will put another one over it. Yeah. And it'll just keep going until like you can see the thickness yeah. of the posters is like that. And then Berlin's really good for that. Yeah, Berlin is one of them. Um, I think Veals was one of them, a mm-hmm. Portuguese artist. And maybe askew um, uh, a New Zealand artist. They they took the posters down and then they they tore them up and dug into them so that you get all these different layers of images. Mm. That's that's a really cool way of um, incorporating the the time scale of um, a certain thing. Lisbon's a great city for street art, in particular. A lot of there's quite a lot of Bill's uh, pieces around there as well. Lisbon is a great city. But so this, I just want to go back to this concept of like the hidden, uh, sort of having work on a rooftop. Um, yes. Do you ever hear like people that have flown over it or yes. seen it seen it from above? The one in Miami, particularly because the the Windward Walls is on the flight path. Oh. Okay. I've actually, I've never seen it personally from the plane because every time I've flown out of Miami or into Miami, I've always been on the wrong side of the plane to see it, which I. You know, I don't even know at this point what the right side of the plane is, because obviously when you fly in, it's a different side to when you're flying out. But I've never seen it, but lots of people have. And of course, the other thing is, is that once people know it's there, the guys with the drones will come out and, and do their thing. Oh, so wow. I'm constantly being updated with how it's deteriorating. And actually, they, the Windward Walls guys, I think two years ago, they asked me to, to come and touch it up. And I was just like, no, I said, I'm not doing that. That's not that's not the point. Yeah. I mean... They don't. They don't have um, a system in place where people can see it anyway. It's just about how it looks in the photos. But for me, the way that the mural deteriorates is as interesting to the photo as a clean mural. Yeah. The the that might have been the last rooftop that I painted. Actually, that 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 job in particular was one that almost broke me because I hadn't. Um, I hadn't considered that in the winter, you know, Miami is not a place that has snow, obviously. But what happens in, in the winter is it has, has a lot of moisture in the air and that moisture settles overnight. So that every every morning when we came to the mural or the rooftop at, at nine o'clock in the morning, there wouldn't just be moisture on the on the roof. There would be puddles and puddles of water and we would have to sweep it off and then we would have to... Um, dab it down like we had bags and bags of rags which we just dabbed into the 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 water to get it off because until about 11 or 12 o'clock the sun wasn't high enough in the sky to burn off the water and so to start painting any earlier than 12 o'clock we literally had to do this hour or hour and a half of um constant cleaning and then of course it's the winter so they have um rainstorms and that year there was like some really bad ones so there was a couple of days where we didn't paint at all 
couple of days where you've started painting and then it rains and that just ruins everything that you wow. painted. We spent um, 16 days doing that piece. <laughs> and I was lucky because I did have like a, a whole slew of um, helpers who weren't there every day, but somebody was there with me every day, whether it's one or two people. And they were there right till the end. So they, they kind of, we kind of kept each other going, if you like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, after that, I, I did, I had done one, two, three, I had done four rooftops up to that stage. Um, but after that one, I thought to myself, I'll seriously consider whether I'll do another one, you know, before making the decision to do it. All the other rooftops I had done, I had just done them without even thinking yeah. about the, the, humidity or the temperature or the particular climate of a of a location um but yeah the it was worthwhile doing that job for sure um it's a shame that nobody sees it in the flesh because i did think that at one point because it is a closed environment that they would set something up like a viewing platform or something like that that people could go up to if they wanted to but that never happened and i, I don't think it ever will now because the the deterioration in the mural is I wouldn't say severe, but it's it doesn't look um, crisp and clean anymore. Put it that way, and it is a girl lying in a bath, so the the added extra dirt on top of her kind of right. <laughs> you know it has another connotation. You also work really well with uh, like imperfections or not imperfections, but there's that piece in San Francisco where you came across the roof and and it had a um, like a skylight on uh, top yeah. so you, you you make it quite site specific in that you use that yes so the both those thought processes actually came around about the same time the 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 plan to do stuff that wasn't going to be seen by people that they would see a photograph instead of um being able to view it in person and also the thought press process of trying to use the environment or the location to dictate what artwork is painted so that rooftop in San Francisco with the um, the the skylight, that was one of them. There's one in Paris where the 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 angle pitch of the roof was used to um, as the umbrella that the girl was holding or the parasol that she was holding. And there's lots of others. Sometimes it's the wall texture. Sometimes it's an architectural element. Um, and some of those um, what I call hidden beauties have actually utilized the surface that they're painted on as well the first hidden beauty was on a boat in um wales and the the boat was actually a project it was a decommissioned um cruise liner that was sitting in a dry dock and was rotting away and some local guy had an idea to to paint it and use it as a sort of an art gallery and when he approached me about it he showed me pictures of the piece and i said to him okay i'll do it as long as i can paint the back of the ship and he said to me, yeah, but the back of the ship is the only part that can't be seen from the coastline. I was like, yeah, that's exactly why I want to do it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and he's like, but he's like, that doesn't make any sense. I was like, yeah, trust me, it'll make sense when it's done. And so I, I painted a gate, I painted a geisha on the back of this cruise liner. And, you know, in the photographs, it looks absolutely amazing. And there, there definitely have been photographers who've gone to that location and kind of waded down into the water to get around the, the security fence so that they can then come back up onto land um, inside the security fence so that they can go and photograph it. Yeah. But I think the, I think the scarcity of photographs actually adds to the kind of the mystique of the, the pieces anyway. Mm. Yeah. That's the, the, this, again, it, it goes back to this ego thing, you know, the, 
egotistical side of being a street artist where you're going to the the biggest cities in the world and you're painting on the most prominent buildings i'm not a fan of that i, I don't care like if i if i can find a hidden location where nobody can see the work then great i'm going to do that every time yeah there's um there's a certain distasteful side to this scene that um for me personally and the the fame and the kind of um the ass kissing if you like that's associated with that i just try to avoid that as much as i can i'm i'm much um happier when i'm working on little private projects or projects that nobody is going to see in the flesh yeah and of course they all they all add to to your um they add to the the kind of the your character if you like not not just your your own personal character but how you're seen by the outside world yeah you know because if you are the egotistical artist who only wants to paint on the biggest walls in the biggest cities then that says an awful lot about you yeah as as does my approach yeah <laughs> um t- teamwork is is obviously a big part of being an artist in terms of especially if you want to work on large scale projects be it on a rooftop um you're scaling work up obviously you talked about the project where it took 16 days because you were ha- having an ongoing battle with the elements so i was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that and how how in terms of building a trust within a team or or how long you've been with a team because it's quite a big thing i think for an artist to delegate their own processes and sort of give a bit of your your, your soul i guess to it is and unfortunately i'm not one of those artists i don't delegate at all so the people who i had helping me when i was in winwood walls were all friends of mine who just offered their services okay. they just wanted to be a part of it um two or three of them were artists in their own right but they just wanted to be part of this project because it was something completely different um another one was a friend of mine from actually she used to work at winwood walls um but she she's a a, a gallerist I, I guess you'd call her but i've i've been seeing her and meeting her in miami for years and years and years now now she's a good friend of mine but she had left the setup at winwood walls but she just came back to help me out um generally when i'm painting murals especially in the states i i employ one other artist um a guy from california called brett crawford and you know he's he's not a guy who comes in as part of my team he, he comes in as a good friend who i know i can trust yeah um we had we had a working relationship long before um he helped me on any murals and actually long before he became a painter himself he he had originally approached me as a as a printer to do some unusual style prints um way way back in like i I think 2014 or something Mm -hmm. um but he's a solid guy and i know i can trust him and i know that i also don't have to i don't have to molly coddle him Mm. i don't have to watch him i don't have to like you know keep reminding him to do something i know that he'll just get on with the job and interrupt me whenever he only when he needs Mm. he can think on his feet he's very technical um a lot of the time I mean, he's definitely been on projects with me where all he's done was operate the lift. He hasn't he hasn't even lifted a paintbrush. But in spite of that, it's still it's good to have someone there who, you know, if if I sometimes when you're painting a mural, you, you the the talking out loud aspect of it can help. You know, because if I'm having a problem or any any kind of issue on the wall, by talking about it and saying it out loud out loud to someone who's there with you. Mm. 
you can get his take on it. And even if his take on it is not um, a solution, it at least can help you to think differently about what you're doing. Um, So to have someone like him who's both technically minded and a very good friend who I know I can trust, that that means an awful lot. Um, And of course, the other thing is it it also um, alleviates boredom. Because when you're, this is the, one of the things about street artists that nobody talks about. When, when you're working on a wall for like 10, 12 days and you're looking at the same image and it doesn't look like there's a lot of progress because all you're doing is just like filling in block collars for the first six days, <laughs> that becomes really boring very, very quickly. So to have someone who you can just laugh and joke with, yeah. that, that, that makes the day much, much better. Um, and I, and you know, the, the thing is, I, I'm the same in the studio. Like I've never had an assistant. I have an assistant now who's, um, a business assistant and she works from here, um, three days a week. And then she works from home the other two days, but she's an art historian. Um, she's a writer and she's obviously very good with business as well. And even though she doesn't touch the, the artworks or the paint, I, st- I can still have conversations with her about art. I can still have conversations about new ideas, new new approaches, new ways to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, having those conversations out loud really can sort of like um, hone your your thought processes. Because as an artist, I don't know if I'm unusual in this sense, but you know, a lot of the time you're you're thinking about stuff that's just absolute. <laughs> Yeah. And is, is is not going to help you in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. And part of that is because of the fact that when I'm painting, you know, my mind is wandering. I'm not concentrating really. I'm in autopilot, and so my mind is free to just, you know, yeah. <laughs> go anywhere it wants to. And a lot of those ideas are just absolute crap, and they shouldn't even be entertained. So when you're having the conversation out loud they can nip those internal conversations in the bud very, very quickly. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that's one of the things we've been missing over the last year, especially. I think because, I mean, this is this podcast episode is going to air in, I think, four to five weeks. But just to give a mm-hmm. bit of context, right now it's the second week of March and um, the students are just about going back to the studios at the moment, um, which is a really exciting time because they've missed that. I mean, obviously we've had lots of meetings, group critiques, but the whole bumping down, bumbling down the uh, corridor, all those times have obviously been taken away pretty much like on and off during the lockdowns. And it's those times where students can, you know, walk around and bump into each other and talk about their ideas and get them out there rather than having to formally organize a video call, but actually actually spontaneously and have that around throughout the day where that's when the real... um, the conversations really happen when when it's not when it's not forced online i guess the the painting assistant side of things is actually a, a lot more difficult it's fine when i'm painting on walls but actually you know i don't have a massive studio i work from home it, it's my preference and so i don't really have the space to have another person come in and work with me in the studio and i'm hoping that at some point that's going to change that i'm able to like get a bigger place or find a studio find a place with a like a uh, an outbuilding of some kind that I can convert into a studio but having the the business advisor or the business assistant has been an absolute godsend because doing everything over the course of the last um, six years has definitely taken a toll yeah um, 
you know, because you're handling your social media, you're handling your taxes, your expenses, your travel. I mean, it's it's hard work. It really is. Yeah. And it, and it never stops. Like, I don't ever have, like, a weekend off or whatever. Mm. The the desire or the need for holidays is compensated by the fact that I travel so much. Mm. But, you know, people forget that when I'm traveling, I'm, I'm working. Yeah. Yes, I'll have a down, a down day or whatever in whatever location, but I'm not on holidays. I, I'm, I'm working and it's, it's hard work. Sometimes it's brutal work depending on the, on the weather. Um, but it's, it's day after day after day. It doesn't change. Yeah. Um, in terms of other artists, if, if you were to tell people, in the UK to go and check out a couple of street artists in on the streets. Would you recommend anyone or, or, or if you want to trash talk anyone, <laughs> feel free to do that. Too. No, no, no. <laughs> trash, trash talking is definitely not my style. No. So the, the, the artist who I would always recommend to people is the same one that I've always, he, he's the artist who I always looked up to right from the word go, not, not, not idolized, but his work stood out from everybody else. And that's, that's actually another Irish guy called Connor Harrington. Oh yeah. Yeah. And actually, you know what, while I'm on the subject of Irish artists, I would always, I would also say, um, Aches from Dublin. Okay. A-C-H-E-S. Mm-hmm. Wildly different styles. Um, I would say wildly different styles to me as well, but technically from both of those artists, those guys are like way, way up there. You know, it's, it's. Sorry, that piece in Dulwich is amazing. They're, they're by Connor Harrington. Ah, yeah, 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 exactly. He's he's just done another one um, close by here in in Greenwich as well. Mm. Um, Eggs, I don't think he's done anything here in London. But of course, you know, you you don't need a specific location to check out artists nowadays, do you? you just have to go online. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, both both of those guys are very very technically gifted, and and I would say like cool art as well. Excellent. But there's you know there's so many. Yeah, of course. Okay. And um, just one last question, really. Uh, any advice you'd give to students or not just students? Because obviously yourself, you've gone down a non-traditional path. Uh, so any, anyone, that you, anything you'd give advice to, to human beings in general who, who, who want to be <laughs> creative? <laughs> well, I always say that I'm the wrong person to ask for advice because I think I've literally done nothing that I was supposed to do. You know, all all the advice that you get as an artist about like approaching galleries and whatever else it might be, I've done none of them. Yeah. Like, I don't even understand how I've managed to maintain myself for the last 10 years in my artistic career because it doesn't really make a lot of sense what I do. Um, But what I always say to people is, is that the whole of my career has been based on my instinct and what has intrinsically felt right to me. So in respect to going and painting walls, you know, no, no one pays me to travel the world and paint walls. Most of those trips are funded by myself hmm. and the majority of the walls are funded by myself as well. The desire to travel was something that I wanted to do. And so I just did it. I found the walls as I went along. I didn't, um, I didn't worry about going to locate to a location and not finding a wall. Um, because I think because I'm, I'm slightly older, people are not going to react to me the way they might do to a 20 year old kid asking, can they paint their wall? You know what I mean? Like a a 20 year old kid with a spray can going up, knocking on someone's door and saying, Oh, can I paint your wall? Well, that has a whole other context 
to me doing it. You mean like the general perception of the person that's answering the door? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Someone yeah, yeah. turning up in a, exactly. a hoodie. Or, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think that's helped me a lot, but also, you know, just being pleasant about it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like when you're asking someone, can you paint their wall? Be respectful, be pleasant about it. You're, you're, you're going to get a yes or no answer. Be happy with whichever one you get and don't let that kind of like put you off. Yeah. Um, I have been fortunate. There's no doubt about that, but you know, the, the, the saying is like a real man makes his own luck. Yep. That's the Titanic quote. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's it's true. Like I, I've done what I've done because I wanted to, and I, I haven't let the fear of doing it get in the way of me doing it. And I haven't allowed other people's opinions get in the way of me doing it either. If I if I had one of the things that I've always done is I've um, used people's negatives or negative opinions of me fuel my fire. If someone says I can't do something, I'm going to prove them wrong. Yeah, That's literally the way I operate. If someone is disrespectful or negative towards me for reasons that are not about art, let's say, you know, you can say someone's art is but don't just say that. Mm. Tell them why. Yeah, Give them reasons why they need to improve. Don't just say it because if you're saying it, that's not saying anything about them. It's saying more about you. Yeah, it needs to be constructive. Because... Yeah. Yeah, because people who are happy with what they do, they don't feel the need to um, denigrate someone else's work. You know, the the saying is is that you don't have your candle burn brighter by blowing out someone else's. Mm. If you're happy when, with your art and with your life, you don't feel the need to be negative towards other people. So when when I get that type of negativity, it always assures me that I'm doing the right thing. Excellent. Thanks so much for your time today, Finn. And thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Artcast. My name's Matt and you've been listening to Finduck. And we'll speak to you again in a couple of weeks. Morley Radio Drama is an exhilarating and unique course that offers students the chance to write, perform and record their own scripts here on Morley Radio. The course is taught by writer Cara Jennings and myself, director, Julia Lewis. You can listen to our previous students' plays here on Morley Radio. Just search Radio Drama. For more information on the course and enrolment, visit morleycollege.ac.uk and search for Morley Radio Drama.